Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Sardana Asban, here with my friend and Chabuta Aaron Gordon. Our daf today, Masachet Ketubot, Dav Samech Bet, page 62. So our Gemara is still going to continue with the discussion about the contract has within marriage and how much change is a man allowed to make that. And it begins with, or it's in the middle of a machlokas between Rav and Rabbi Yochanan. Now, again, just from a generational point of view, uh, you know, it's interesting that we see this or sort of who's who, because Rabbi Yochanan's really in Eretz Yisrael. Rav is in Babel, but we know that Rav did spend some time learning in Eretz Yisrael. Uh, so just keep in mind the geography and sort of, and remember, the, these are two Amurayim who are sort of the bridging Amurayim. Uh, they've learned with Rabbi Huda Hanasi, and they're sort of the first generation Amorayim. So just to give a little background uh, to that, at least. Um, and so it begins with two machlokas of Rabbi, Rabbi Yochanan and Rav. The first one is over whether or not, right, this began on the previous page, a husband can make an agreement with his wife, right, to sort of limit or, or change the conjugal rights. So, right, is he allowed to say, that he wants to spend a month learning Torah and then he has to come home for a month. That's Rav's opinion. And Rabbi Yochanan says, um, uh, no, if he spends one month away, right, in the Beit Midrash, then he needs to spend two months um, at home. And they they learn this from, uh, you know, they, they you know they learn this from how the Beit HaMikdash was built. It's an interesting machlokas. And then the Gemara moves on to a very strange machlokas that I do not quite understand. And Anne Correct me if I'm wrong. You didn't quite understand either. Um, <laughs> which is another machlokas between Rav and Rabbi Yochanan um, that has to do with groaning or signing, right? <laughs> and um, that basically a groan, um, uh, you know, that according to Rav, if you groan, it breaks like half your body. And according to Rabbi Yochanan, it can break even your whole body. And they base this on two pesukim that appear in Yechezkel in the same parak, chapter 21, one verse after the other. So Rav quotes Yechezkel, parak, uh, kap alav, pasuk yud alav, chapter 21, verse uh, 11. And Rabbi Yochanan quotes the pasuk right afterward, verse 12. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's interesting. And then they try to go through exactly why each one doesn't use, uh, doesn't use the other one. Um, and part of what they talk about with this idea of sighing is it's like a symbol of like anguish. It's like a symbol of like being upset about something. Um, and how does that relate back to, right? It says here, you know, later on, right? That when we talk about the news of the Beit HaMikdash, it's different. It's very crushing. It causes, you know, a lot of sighing. It's a sighing is basically a sign of like a person being tormented and being in anguish, um, but usually it should only cause half the body to break. And then it tells this very strange story. So I know I just did a lot out of the top because this is one of these steps. Anne and I said we could have read the whole top. So I'm doing a lot of summarizing. So there was a Jew and a non-Jew who were walking together on the roads. And the Non-Jew couldn't keep up with the Jew, right? Who was, I guess, walking faster. Right? So what does he do? He tries to remind him about the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash with the idea being that if he gets the Jew upset, it'll slow him, uh, it'll slow him down. 
Nagid be Nach, right? So what happens? So uh, the the Jew basically sighs and he groans. But still, he doesn't, uh, he still can't keep up with him. Amarle, right? So now the non Jew says to the Jew, Don't we say that, that groaning, sighing breaks the half of a body? Okay. Now, this is such an interesting thing because, in other words, it's like the non Jew is quoting back a piece of Torah to him. To try to understand what's going on here. Um, so the Jew says back to Hadati, right? So he says to him, this only has to do with a sad thing that's new, right? Right? But for something that we that we constantly suffer for, right? Basically, or or we've become used to, it doesn't affect us as much. To Amri Inche, right? Because as people say, right? Uh, right, that one who's used to, unfortunately, having uh, uh, who lost children uh, doesn't panic if 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 one of them dies. Or right, so in other words, if somebody's lost a child, maybe it doesn't feel bad when they lose another child, right? Because they become used to it. So I, I you know, now whether or not that's true, I don't know, but. Uh, you know, I think it's, it's a fascinating story. First of all, the idea that the Jew, the non-Jew sort of uh, quotes this to a Jew, the idea that non-Jews sort of were aware that there was this pain that Jews carried with them all the time over the destruction of the Beit HaMizash. And that ultimately what the Jew says is, and I think there's a comment here about grief that is sort of like, it's not that it goes away, but you you learn to live alongside it, basically, right? You 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 learn you learn that you sort of in your day to day life, it's just something that's constantly uh, that's constantly present. Which I think people who do experience grief could say that that is what happens. Not that it's something that you get over; it's just always alongside you. Um, but I feel like there's probably comment you know commentators must go much farther because I, I to me at least this seems like this could be a very very deep story. Uh, with a lot of different ways to understand what's going on here. And finally, uh, the last part of this, you know, step uh, before I hand it off to Anne, is hatayilim uh, yom. right? We talked about that men of leisure have to have conjugal relations with their wife every day. And now the Gemara wants to say, my tayilim, what is a man of leisure? I'm a Rava, b'nei Pirke. And Rava surprisingly says that it's actually a student who um, go every day to review their Torah lectures. So it's Tamizei Chachamim, basically. It's students of Torah. So Abai quotes a pasuk in Tehillim for him from chapter 127, verse 2, that says, It is vain for you to rise early and sit up late. You eat, you that eat the bread of, you know, that you worked for. So Hashem gives to his beloved sleep, right? But Amar Rav Yitzchak, Amar Rav Yitzchak says, this pasuk refers to the wives of Torah scholars, whose, who deprive their eyes or they don't have sleep in this world, right? Right? And they get sleep in the next world. So the point of I saying is, is that Torah scholars aren't men of leisure, right? They work very hard. Look what this pasuk says. Um, and you say 
that it's these students who are actually the men of leisure. Now, I wonder if part of the <laughs> maybe if I was uncomfortable with being told that he was a man of leisure, right? Um, you know, and and but it's interesting that I think he needs to bring a pasuk to sort of um, prove this. Ella Amar so Bai says, no, this is what it means. And he holds by the opinion of Rav. Right? That this is, refers to a man like Rav Shmuel Bar Shilad, who ate his own food, drank his own drinks, right? And the king's tax collector, right? Oh, sorry. And uh, sleeps in the shade of his own house. Taka Demalka Ababe, and the tax collector doesn't come by his door. In other words, it's a person who just sees income, he doesn't have to worry. This is what a man of leisure is. Ki ata Rabin Amar. When Rabin came from Eretz Israel, he said, Kagon, uh, This is like the wealthy men, the pampered men of the West. And so I think it's interesting to see sort of this machlokas between Rabba and Abaye. What do we do with these people? You know, I, I understand it. Like, on the one hand, I understand Robert's opinion. Like, being allowed to sit and learn all day, there is a certain type of leisure. You're not having to worry about having to make a living, it seems, or having to earn money, right? There's, I don't know, to me at least, if I could sit and learn, that would be leisurely, right? Um, and Abaye, I, I, I think Abaye seems to take, like, a little fence. He goes very hard to try to prove that that can't be true, and a man of leisure has to be more typically uh, of of what we uh, say about that, and then we finally get to again uh, this very strange story where they want to sort of prove that there was a different type of health or strength that people in Eretz Yisrael has. Rabbi Yaval Habe Kaibe Bane. So Rabbi Yaval says was once standing in a bathhouse. Habe Smache Le Tre Abde, and he had two slaves who were like supporting him while he was walking. Ipechitbe Bani Mitute. Right, and the bathhouse called He finds a pillar, right? Um, and what does he do? He got out and he pulls out the two servants. It's supposed to show he's a very, very strong person. Like, yes, they helped him get to the bathhouse, but when the bathhouse collapsed, right, this was a person who learned Torah and he lived in Israel. He had sort of this extraordinary strength. Rabbi Yochanan And again, now we have a story with Rabbi Yochanan. Who's once going upstairs? And Ravami and Ravasi were helping him. And again, the stairs collapse underneath him. Okay. So he gets up and he pulls them up with him. Right. So again, this is like having some type of superhuman strength. So the sages say to Rabbi Yochanan, so if you have so much strength, why did you need to walk around with these two people supporting you, right? So So he says, if I use all my strength now, then what am I leaving myself for later? Now, it's still a very strange story. I think it's here to illustrate that the people of Eretz Yisrael had some type of additional, um, additional strength. And Rabbi Yochanan sort of saying, like, but I don't need to use that strength all the time. Um, and then fine. But again, I think part of what's going on here is, is that, you know, it, 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 there's something the Gemara is uncomfortable with by sort of saying that Tamidei Chachamim are men of leisure, like that they have it easier. That's the Machlokas with Rabba and Abaye. 
And I think they're also trying to say that those who do study and learn, particularly in Eretz Yisrael, they're blessed with some type of extra th- strength. Like even though you think they're sitting around and learning, I, I think it's like they, they still, there's something special about that and they, and they have some type of extra strength that other people don't have. And then finally, this part I'm not going to read, then the Gemara gets into a discussion uh, about the actual time intervals for conjugal relations depending on your job. And one of the questions it basically asks is, uh, you know, like let's say a donkey driver, right, <clears throat> once every two weeks, says that he wants to uh, move to, uh, sorry, donkey drivers is once a week. Let's say he wants to move to now be a camel driver, which is once every six months. And basically, um, the Gemara basically concludes and says, yeah, it's basically okay. Because if a woman understands, because going back to the machlokas we have with Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, where a man vows abstinence, the Gemara basically says, if a husband's doing it because of work, right? That's very different than somebody who vows and they're living together in the house and she has to see him all the time than somebody who's away and is doing it in order to provide for his family. So I, I, I could keep reading, but I'm going to hand it over to you, Ann. <laughs> um, I think that some of the challenges of this stuff are, um, you know, like, I don't know, um, referent, like, I feel like it refers to thing, things that we don't necessarily know what they are, right? This whole issue with the sighing and the groaning, uh, what does that mean that it, it breaks so a body in two? I that I think it's actually discussing in a way like outward signs of grief. We actually live in a society today where we don't really discuss other people's grief. Like somebody loses somebody and the expectation is sort of, even within the Jewish religion with our year, you know, especially for a parent where it's a year long, you sort of are just, you move on. People don't necessarily ask you about it. Like we... We have a little bit of, I'm speaking as an American here. Israelis may say they feel differently about that, but we have a funny relationship with grief. And maybe part of what that staff is talking about is like, you know, grief is, can be much more part of who you are. It doesn't necessarily break you in half, but some types of grief do. I agree with you. I think it's a very interesting passage. And and I think the wording of it, the phrasing of it, I mean, yes, I do think that you're right, that there's a, a much more, tangible expression of grief i think associated with less western cultures let's put it that way um but then also right the the question of the conjugal relations based on professions you know for for all the magazines that explore all kinds of issues of people's private lives i feel like that's not really a current a current um benchmark in our you know expectations of i don't know and any kind of private life is not going to necessarily say, well, what, what does your husband do? Or how are you going to, whom do you want to marry based on his profession, based on the conjugal uh, obligations? Um, you know, it's, it's a different kind of conversation than I think that most people are engaging in nowadays. Um, I want to note that the Gemara picks up from this discussion and goes on to talk about when exactly is the best time for Talmidei Chachamim, in fact, to fulfill their obligations, their conjugal obligations. So when is this ideal time for the Torah scholars to engage or fulfill their conjugal relations, their obligations there? Um, this says, you know, from one Friday night to the other, to the next Friday night. Erev Shabbat, of course, it doesn't... I don't really, it, it, it's not used to mean the way we're talking about preparatory time before Shabbat, right? It means from the night of Shabbat, from like from the Erev of Shabbat, as opposed to um, the 
I don't know. It doesn't work. I guess even in English, you get the same problem of Eve and Erev. Sometimes it could mean actually into the night, and sometimes it really means prior to the time that the night begins. In this case, it means at night, right? And it sounds like it's a a week-to-week kind of thing in direct or suggested contradiction to what you said before, Yardina, about the scholars having a conjugal obligation for every day. Um, Whether that's the case or this is just a matter of like, what's the ideal time? I'm sure we could, you know, Um, explore this further. I'm sure the commentaries do as well. I want to note that part of where this comes, this is like a a halachic interlude, right, between stories. Right before this, we have the story of Rav Rechumi. Rav Rechumi would go study with Rava in Machoza, and he wasn't home, meaning not only his conjugal relations were deferred, and even more so because he would come home every year, year on on Erev um, Yom Kippur. Have a regil da have a ati leveta kol malay yom de Kippur. The problem, of course, is that on Erev Yom Kippur, um, you know, Yom Kippur is a day where conjugal relations is prohibited. So, in any case, this is when he would come home. But what happens is Yom Achad Mishachte Shmata have a sorry, Mesachia Debetu. So he was so like entrenched or engrossed in the in his Torah studies that he stayed in the Beit Midrash. He didn't go home. In the meantime, of course, the wife, Hashta Hashta Ati, Hashta Ati, he's she he's she is waiting for him and saying, Now he's coming. Is he coming now? Now he's coming, right? Waiting and waiting. But what happens? Lo Ata, he doesn't come. Khalash Data. So she gets very upset. Achit the Dimameana a tear falls from her from her eye. Have a yativ beigra, ifrid igra mituta mitute. So in the end, it ends up that he's sitting on the roof. Now, again, he hasn't come. Now he's some, suddenly sitting on the roof. When we have these agadic stories, right? They're worth unpacking in a very slow and careful um, way, even with the Aramaic and and parsing it out and figuring where the the voice changes and so on, which we're not going to do now. But the point is, somehow, he ends up sitting on the roof, and then at that moment, the roof collapses, and he dies. And the moral of the lesson, according to the Gemara here, is, um, you know, I'm sorry, he dies. That's the, It says specifically that he dies. But the implication is, like, how dare he cause his wife such distress by not coming home? And look at that, What you know, he, he, he wasn't rewarded more for his extra Torah study. Put it that way. So why is this relevant? Because then we have, again, after this tidbit of what time, Friday night, etc., we move on to another story that's not the same story, but it's a comparable issue. Yehuda Bered Rebichia Chatanei Derebiyanei Hava Azil Viyati Vivei Rav. So Yehuda is the son of Rebichia and the son-in-law of Rebiyanei, meaning he's married, right? And he would go to the Beit Midrash and then and then every Friday night at at it says at at um Benash Mashot, right? Meaning at twilight, he would come to his house. So when he would come there, Ravyanai, so this is again his father in law, would see a pillar of fire, you know, coming before him. Um, you know, heralding him. And the implication is, or the point is, that this is how righteous he was or how, how pious he was. So then one day he, Yehuda, right, was so engrossed in his study, which is parallel again to the Rav Rechumi, 
So he's so engrossed in his study that he ended up staying in the Beit Midrash and he didn't go home. So what happened? So Rav Yanai doesn't see the fire that's preceding him, that sign that would come before him. So he said to his family, and this is, a, I think, also a little bit, you know, we're in we're in kind of a twilight zone of Gemara stories. Kafumi Tato turn over his bed, meaning the point being you do that when some, this was the language or the practice when one one died as part of the mourning rites. He says, if he were alive, he would not have missed this time that he's supposed to come home to be with his wife. So he must have. So he must have died since he didn't come home. And I'm thinking, you, you couldn't go just check in the Beit Midrash to see if he's there? But the point still stands, right? Meaning it ends up being a rebuke to the son-in-law that the son-in-law has not come home to be, you know, it, it's a, if it's not serious, if, the, if there's no, it's hard to know sometimes with the Gemara's tone, right? But if this is a, a, what I would call in modern colloquial, I don't know what, yeshivish, a shtuch, right? Like he's he's poking at the son-in-law and saying, well, he must have died if he didn't come home for his time with my daughter, right? Like that's the that's the implication. It becomes like, it's like a, a mistake that goes forth from before the ruler. That's a verse from Kohelet, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 10. And then he died. Yehuda, the son of Rebekiah, who's the son-in-law of Rebbe died because... It sounds like, and and now, of course, now it's serious, right? Meaning because of the fact that he didn't come home, before because he wasn't there on time, the critique from his father-in-law is sharp enough that, oh, my goodness, now he has died. Not that he didn't come because, lo and behold, it was true that he had died. Although I imagine that this text is actually open enough to that interpretation that we could read Rabbi Rav Yanai not as giving a shtuch and a rebuke, but in fact, um, true distress, because this man would never have not come home on time, in which case then then it's not the same kind of, um, I mean, it says, the text says he was so engrossed in his study that he missed the timing. But we could understand where somebody who takes it so seriously would end up, you know, um, only missing the timing if something truly dire had happened. And then we get another story, Rav Yasegle Levre Be. So Rebbe, right, that's Rebbe Yudanasi, he organized it so that his son could marry a daughter of Rebbe So they come to write the Ketubah, which now I feel like, oh, we're back in Masachi Ketubot, right? And um, and the the girl, the daughter, dies. So Amar Rebbe, Rebbe Yudanasi, says, Chas v'shalom psula ika. Is there, was there some kind of problem between the two families that, like the point being that God intervened to make sure that they would not violate some principle, right? And that's why, that would then explain why this daughter from the household of Rebichia would have died. So they sat down and they kind of investigated the the ancestry, the yichus, right, to see what the histories were. Rabbi Ati Mishvate ben Avital, Rabbi Chia Ati Mishmei Achi David. So they look up, they figure it out that Rabbi Yudanasi is descended from Shvataya ben Avital, who was the wife of Ital, the wife of David HaMelech, and Rabbi Chia was descended from Shimi, who's David HaMelech's brother. 
So this is really good family tree history, right? Oh, I'm sorry. The point being then, right, that, that this lineage, you know, this lineage between um, David HaMelech, right, the, the idea is, I mean, it's not so simple, but the implication is that because of that lineage going back to the time of David HaMelech, they should not have been married to each other. It's a little bit difficult to uphold that. Um, you know, it's not the same thing as saying like, oh, we discovered that somebody was a mom's there, and then lo and behold, they're not going to, that's, um, that might make sense to make sure that the generations um, not actually intermingle. But in this case, it's a little bit tricky to say why would it be that there would be a problem in this particular um, genealogy, and yet, you know, it, it seems like they're related, but again, it would, if anything, it would seem that it's a better match. So the answer is, we don't know why it is, right? We don't know why she died. So again, he comes to arrange a, do, a match for his son from the, with a daughter from the household of Rabbi Yossi ben Zimra. So what happens? They have an agreement that they're going to support him for 12 years to learn in the Beit Midrash. So then what happens? The girl, the, the daughter meets the Chatan, right? And he says, and he says, well, let's just keep it six years, meaning he wants to get married. And then again, right? She said, they, she again, he again sees her and he says, I'll marry her now and then I'll go learn. And then he's, of course, a little bit embarrassed in front of his father because he figures that his father's going to be upset that he's prioritizing this marriage instead of those years in the Beit Midrash. But his father says, no, you, you know, you made a decision in a, in a way that is exactly what God has set up to happen here, right? This, um, you're, you're, you have the knowledge of koncha, you're, of your, the one who made you, yeshbacha, you have it, right? The idea being, um, this is a compliment that he is prioritizing, I guess, the family, the connection, the marriage. Fine. And then, Azal Yatav, I'm skipping a little bit, a tiny bit. Azal Yatav Tarte Sarez Shnei Bevei Rav. He goes and he sits in this Beit Midrash for 12, for 12 years. When he comes back, however, his wife, by that point, 12 years later, has become infertile. Um, it's not clear why she would be infertile. There's no implication here that she's particularly old. Um, the implication is that she's infertile because of all of those years separated from her husband, which I suppose is possible, um, but also not exactly the way fertility works the way we know it, right? So what happens? I'm a rabbi now. Rabbi Hanasi is concerned what what to do. Hechi navid nigrasha, right? If he's going to divorce her because she's not she's not conceiving, right? She's not getting pregnant. Then people are going to say yomru aniyazul shav shimer. She was waiting for all that time for nothing, right? All that Torah study for nothing. And if he marries somebody else, ninsev itita achrete yomru zo ishto v'zo zonato. And if he marries somebody else, and then for the sake of having children, then people will say, well, look, this one is the one who bears him children. That one's the wife. And the other one, the first wife, would be just like a, a zonata, his mistress, I guess we could say, nicely. By Ale Rahmana Vitva Atisiat. So what happens? The son, Rebuta Nasi's son, goes and prays for Hashem to have mercy on the wife 
which I think also translates into mercy on the sun, and um, and she conceives. Um, it's a long daf. I just want to. I I can't skip this last bit. Um, Reb Chananya ben Chakinai is. We have another story of exactly this kind of thing where he ends up. I'm going to talk about this outside, right? Reb Chananya ben Chakinai goes to the. Beit Midrash at the end of the, the feast, the festivities of Rav Shimon Bar Yochai's wedding. And Rav Shimon Bar Yochai says, and we know that he's an intensive personality, right? He says, wait, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come with you now that I, you know, the feasting is over. He wants to learn Torah, right? So, but in the end, he didn't wait. He went and he sat for 12 years in the Beit Midrash. So again, this seems to be like a, a style or a motif, these 12 years, right? And then by the time he comes back, all of the paths of the city has changed and he doesn't know how to get home. So I, I can't quite say that this is, you know, the, the Rip Van Winkle of Choni Amagel, um, Choni the circle maker who, you know, falls asleep for 70 years and nobody recognizes him and so on. This is a different kind of thing. But the implication of, you know, locking yourself away for the sake of Torah to the extent that you can't even know the pathways of your city is a bit of an extreme kind of, it, it sounds to me like it's a critique. Right. If nothing else, if nothing else, it's a description, but it sounds a little bit like a critique. And then what happens? And again, this is in the Gemara. It's in Aramaic. Right. The narrative here. He comes. He sits by the bank of the river, and he hears that people are calling out um, Bat Chakinai, the daughter of Chakinai, um, which um, you know. Again, this was Rav Chananya ben Chakinai went to the Beit Midrash. Now they're calling daughter of Chakinai. Come and fill your picture, picture, and he concludes that this must be his own daughter, meaning Rav Hananya ben Chakinai's daughter um, must have been this person, who she, and he doesn't recognize her because it's been 12 years, right? So he goes, basically he goes home, and his wife is sitting there, and she's sifting flour, and she lifts, she, she looks up and she sees him, right, and recognizes him, and then she's so kind of taken, she's just struck by this, and she dies from the stress of it. And then Rav Hanani says, before God, he says, meaning, how can it be that this is her reward? She was so patient, waiting for him to come home. And he pleads for mercy for for her. And um, and it says, and she lives, meaning she comes back to life, she's resuscitated, whatever it is, right? So it's, again, it's a very powerful acknowledgement of the, the strength of her faith that she waited for so long, and then she's kind of totally overwrought from when he shows up, and she's able, he is able to daven for her um, cure, I suppose. Um, Rav Chama Bisa sat in the Beit Midrash for 12 years, and he says, I'm not going to do what Chakinai did, and I'm not going to do that. I'm going to send a message home. They send the message home, um, and he's sitting there, his son... Rav Ushaya comes, he doesn't recognize him. Rav Ushaya asks him halacha questions. Rav Chama, Rabbi Chama appreciates his questions, right? They were good questions. And then Rabbi Chama says, oh my goodness, if I had been there and I would have taught my son this way, I would have a son who would be so sharp like this, right? Meaning, that is his son. That is his son. That is exactly his son's questions. And he's upset now that he missed out on having a son because he, again, was in the Beit Midrash for 12 years. Again, I feel like this is an indictment of the... It's not an indictment of Torah study. It's an indictment of forsaking normal 
home family life for the sake of Torah study. So then Rav Chama goes home, and his son goes home with him, right? And then he kind of, he has to understand what's going on, right? He stands up, he understands that this is a, somebody who really knows halacha. And his wife says, you know, but you're as, like, it, she asks it as a, in a rhetorical way, right? Like, is there a father who's going to stand up before his son? And that's how he realizes that Rav Ushaya is the son of Rav Chama Barbisa, and that it's, in fact, you know, a, a powerful um, Torah heritage, I would say, in that family. They say it's three generations of Torah scholars. Okay, at this point, I'm going to stop. I've been going on for long enough. The, the daf is not even over, but we're going to continue tomorrow. So I, I think we'll discuss more of this tomorrow because we're going to get to a very famous story about Rabbi Akiva giving coming attractions. Um, and uh, this whole idea of like men leaving their wives for extended periods of time. I think t- tomorrow after we read the Rabbi Akiva story and we sort of have all these stories together, I think then we'll sort of deep dive into whether the Gemara is saying this is a good thing or whether the Gemara is actually critical of this. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us reviews at all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend E. Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hydrant website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.